Welcome to our podcast, Leading Past Limits. We share lessons learned from the hard-won experience of mission-driven leaders so that you expand your horizons as a leader that places service before self. I'm Kumar Kibble, a leadership coach and the principal at GuideQuest. I've been passionate about developing leaders since graduating from West Point more than 30 years ago and have led high-performing teams as a military officer, special agent, diplomat, government, and corporate executive. Now I partner with leaders and teams as a coach to help unlock their potential and maximize their impact. In this first season, join me in learning from entrepreneurs, CEOs, Army generals, police chiefs, war heroes, thought leaders, and more. Be sure to subscribe and don't miss out on lessons learned from the real world School of Hard Knocks. Our guest today, Kyle White, has extensive expertise in many areas of the veteran experience, including transition, employment, treatment of post-traumatic stress, as well as erasing the stigma associated with mental health in American society. Kyle is also known for being a Medal of Honor recipient. As a recipient, he focuses on promoting employment, education, and mental health care of service members and veterans. In addition, Kyle enjoys working with organizations to promote good citizenship. He served in the U.S. Army as an airborne infantryman with the 173rd Airborne Brigade Combat Team. Following his heroic service, he earned a degree in finance and worked in the finance sector for six years before co-founding 1109, a company that helps U.S. businesses, government agencies, and philanthropies develop innovative and transformative programs impacting veterans, service members, and their families. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. So we generally kick off with, uh, with the fundamental purpose. So what, uh, what do you view as your life's purpose? In other words, when the end comes, uh, what will you want the people you care about the most to say about you? That's a good one. You know, for me, over the years, I think the answer to that question has changed. Um, you know, just as our lives change and you know, things that we find important and value um, evolve as we do. You know, at the end of the day or at the end of life, I, I just hope whatever I, I accomplished during my time on Earth that you know, it was, it somehow left, you know, the world in a better place than when <laughs> I entered it. And so, you know, the work in the mental health care space, you know, in the suicide prevention efforts, you know, if we can even touch just one life, um, you know, potentially saving one life and, and altering, you know, that person's chance of success and long-term happiness. And I think that's a measure of success in my book. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, you know, your, your responses kind of lead into, I suspect, uh, the next question, which is, um, you are actually the first co-founders and entrepreneurs we've had on the show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, I think you've got a lot to say about, uh, you know, what moved you to start 1109. And, I, and I'm particularly interested in this idea of risk because you have served in the military, have dealt with risk management in that context. But I think it's a whole different kind of, of courage and risk management when you're when you're trying to start something from scratch, not knowing, you know, uh, whether that's going to work. Um, so I'm, I'm curious as to what moved you to start 1109. Uh, you know, for me, I think I. I share a common um, mindset, and I think it's, you know, across the board with those that have served our country, you know, that that feeling of fulfillment when, you know, the job's done, the mission's complete, you know, your deployment's over. And it, it's just really, a, it's, you have a purposeful mission. Um, when I got out and, and went to school and, and started my career in finance, you know, you might have, you know, the chance to make a small difference, especially in my role as a, a fixed income trader, you know, I might make somebody a couple extra hundred dollars a day or whatever it may be, but the measurable impact beyond that is lacking. And so, especially after being involved in you know, the veteran services space and mental health care space, just really the story of the American veteran, you realize that, you know, there's a lot of areas that can be improved. And at the end of the day, um, sitting down with Lewis, you know, we understood that, hey, we can do this better. Um, there's a better way to go about, you know, affecting change in a real meaningful and positive manner. And so we started 1109. Uh, and Partly because, you know, that culture that we love so much about our time in uniform, uh, something that was lacking in our current positions. And we said, you know, I think we can make a difference. We can create, a, you know, an excellent company culture 
and really grow something special, the two of us. And, you know, 1109 has evolved a lot since, you know, forming back in, in mid 2007 or 2017, excuse me. But, you know, that, that driving force behind our reason for starting uh, remains. And so, you know, it's funny, you mentioned risk uh, in, in kind of in pursuing that, that endeavor and taking that chance and starting your own, your own business. And I really think it came full circle in, in that full realization of how risky, you know, an undertaking like this is. Um, when I left, you know, my, my job at Bank of America in late 2019 and, you know, started off strong in 2020 and here comes COVID, you know, and that really throws a wrench into, you know, your plans, you have to adapt, overcome and, you know, keep pushing forward. And, you know, we're coming out in the, the tail end of that um, as a company and as a country. And so, you know, being able to, to persevere through some of those challenging times, um, you know, you really realize what the stakes are and, you know, just use that. You can either take it as a, as a way to, you know, stifle progress and, you know, get locked within the challenges you're faced, or you can say, hey, we're going to push through this. We're going to find a way forward and just keep charging. What the uh, 1109, what's behind the name? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. Um, when thinking about you know, starting a company, I think probably every founder goes through this. You know, it's interesting how complicated it is to choose a name. <laughs> I mean, there's so many different, you know, people using acronyms and, you know, whatever it may be, but it was important for us to have some sort of personal connection that really guided you know, not only our mission forward, but encompasses what is important to us. Um, as I was thinking about really the, the story of my life since November 9, 2007, um, which is the date of action, which I was awarded the Medal of Honor, uh, you know, everything that has resulted in my life is because of that day. I mean, that altered my trajectory inside the, the army, um, you know, pushed me to get out and get my degree and enter into the finance world. And, you know, without that, I wouldn't have met my wife, wouldn't have my kids, you know, everything. And so, you know, I always wanted to have some way of remembering uh, that fact that, you know, out of tragedy, you know, can, you know, oftentimes <laughs> wonderful things can happen. And I also felt, you know, very early on after that ambush that I'd be given a second chance at life because um, I had a... <laughs> more than my share of close calls that day. Uh, but I always wanted to remember, you know, whatever I was able to achieve, you know, whatever hardships I may face in the future, that I just always remember, you know, things could be worse. And, you know, also, you know, when things are going great, um, you know, not to remember those that, you know, are not here anymore um, in the second chance I have been given. And so, I mean, I forget how the specific name came up, but, you know, 1109, uh, November 9th is you know, the numeric um, you know, calendar day for, for that uh, incident. And for some reason, it just stuck, uh, just, you know, took hold, it stuck. And, you know, as we were thinking about you know, the, the logo and everything that encompasses it, um, it just really resonated with me. And I was like, that's, that's what we're going with. That's the name of the company. And, you know, if you look in our logo, uh, and those that are listening, if you look up our website, you know, you see the shape, uh, our, our logos in the shape of a guide on. So, you know, always moving forward. And then the six stars that are in within the E are representative of the six guys that were killed in action on nine November, 2007. So, you know, very personal connection of, you know, where it came from. And then also, sort of an anchoring point on where we're going. So, you know, within our company, you know, mission and, and values, you know, it's always to be veteran focused. It's always to, you know, have veterans in the workforce. And if I could hire hundred percent veterans, I will. Um, but the point being is that, you know, whatever we're able to achieve as a company and as a culture together, uh, you know, we always want to make sure we're giving back to those that, you know, worn the uniform, those that are serving back in our communities, their gold star family members and their children. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's been an incredible journey, but, you know, I always think that's something about our story, uh, that really resonates with, with people we socialize it with. And it's important because it's really a glimpse of who we are, what we stand for and what we believe in. Now you, you mentioned how that one day 
did so much to kind of shape your life moving forward. I would, and I remember as a kid at West Point, just being enthralled by um, the actions of Medal of Honor recipients and the, and really the love that they demonstrated in uh, fighting for their buddies to their left and to their right. But I've got to imagine, I mean, I can't imagine what that's like. I mean, do you ever worry about being defined um, or, or being looked at in a, in a, in a narrower way because of that day, because of November the 9th? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Kumar, that's a great question. And, you know, I kind of indicated earlier as we, you know, grow, um, personally and professionally in our lives, you know, our, our views can change. And this is really one, uh, piece of my life that I guess my understanding and my comfort level with being a recipient, um, uh, has changed over time. So, you know, I'll, I'll give you a little story here. Uh, they always, in former recipients and, and people I've met, um, uh, I shouldn't say former recipients, but uh, fellow recipients uh, and people I've met prior to the award ceremony back in 2014 always told me, you know, what the medal meant and how heavy it wears and, and things of that nature. And it really wasn't until the ceremony that day where I'm looking right at you know, the Gold Star family members in attendance and President Obama's, you know, putting the word around my neck that I really understood what that meant. And for me, it also really anchored the level of um, responsibility that comes with being a custodian of the Medal of Honor. You know, everybody always refers to us as, as recipients or um, awardees, you know, whatever you may um, see fit. But, you know, we're just really custodians guarding, you know, a specific moment in our proud military heritage. And so for me, you know, be, being given this tremendous platform, you know, I might be able to walk into a crowd of 100 people and nobody recognize me. But the minute I put on that medal, you know, everybody's focus shifts and, you know, they're incredibly attentive to what you have to say and you better make sure that you say the right things. And so, you know, for me, as years passed, I really wanted to ensure that whatever, you know, I chose to stand for as a recipient, whatever I represented, you know, really reflected how I, I felt and really what mattered to me. Um, and it was issues around really the story of the American veteran. So, you know, the issues that are faced in, in, um, education, transition, you know, mental health and post-traumatic stress, and specifically, you know, suicide prevention. Uh, those are all real things. And, and for me, you know, as, as time grew on, you know, time went on, you know, my comfort level in speaking about those and being involved in so lending my support for those that are championing for those same efforts, you know, really evolved along with that. And so um, it, it's been interesting, but you know, as much as you would like to shy away from, hey, I'm just, you know, Kyle White, I'm not Kyle White Medal of Honor recipient, you know, that label's always going to be with me. And so being able to uh, be comfortable with that title while still accomplishing your mission, um, it still remains a challenge sometimes, but it's one that I work towards because always understanding that, you know, like our logo says, and, and like I explained earlier, you know, just being anchored in those values that you stand for and really living true to, you know, the personal mission, that company mission, you know, what you set out to do. Um, it really helps keep saying, keep things in balance and keep moving forward in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Kyle, for, for those that aren't familiar with what you dealt with on November the 9th, 2007, would you share a little bit about how, how the, that event unfolded and the difficulties you faced and the decisions you had to make? Absolutely. And so, you know, first off, while I'd love to go into complete detail on the story of, of the battle, you know, we'd be here all day uh, talking <laughs> with that level of detail. But um, what I'd like to, you know, direct the listeners to is that if you go on U.S. Army's homepage and, and search Medal of Honor, there's a great thing called the Battlescape. And so whatever I, I don't cover here or whatever you'd like to learn more in depth about, um, you can, you know, search my name and there's a battlescape. It, it gives different points of view from those that were on the ambush, um, unique interviews and, and diagrams to really help you paint the picture of what exactly took place on that hillside. Um, but Kumar, I think it's important, you know, to understand, and, and a lot of people may not know this, but, you know, I was 20 years old uh, on 9 November 2007 and... You know, I'd just been recently promoted to specialist. I was the radio telephone operator. So, 
you know, all in all, I was a pretty junior enlisted member of you know, the 173rd, um, still learning things every day and still had a lot to learn. Uh, but really the, the premise to the patrol we were on in really our, our current status within that valley, in the Weigall Valley, was that we had been previously attacked at an outpost called Ranch House, um, located above a village called Aranus. And, you know, it was a well-coordinated attack. They had help from the locals. And so leadership um, after the uh, attack decided to close down that uh, specific outpost. And we relocated down the valley about four miles straight line uh, to another outpost called Bella, which in Italian is beautiful. But I tell you what, that place was not beautiful. Um, and strategically, it was probably in the worst location it could be. But that's a story for another time. Uh, and so we had no real connection with that village, um, you know, since closing down the, uh, that outpost in late August of 2007. And so when you think about our mission there and what we were supposed to do, especially as an infantry unit in, you know, very remote part of Afghanistan, it's really, you know, trying to build the goodwill. I think at the time it was referred to as the hearts and minds. And so you're really working with the local population to, you know, build trust, build coalition, you know, understand ways that we can, you know, both defeat the enemy and build, you know, a good, uh, a good partnership in the process. And so, you know, as November approached, we were invited to assure a meeting. And for listeners that aren't uh, familiar with that, it's about the equivalent of your local city council meeting. And so we've been a part of a fair amount of sure meetings up to that point. And for the most part, it's a handful of individuals and mostly the, the elder members of the the village. And, you know, they tell us what they need from us. And, you know, we ask where the enemy is every time. And, you know, the same thing, no Taliban, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a, a part for the course. But this time was a little bit different. And we'd known, you know, based on the stories throughout uh, our area of responsibility at the time that anytime you're invited somewhere specific time specific day there's a good chance you're going to get ambushed and so you know our leadership understood the risk but decided you know it's a good opportunity to re-engage with the population and so we ended up you know using the cover of night as our advantage to move on um, november 8th 2007 uh, to the village and, and pretty much stay the night in the school that we had built for the children of the village and, and engage in the sure meeting the next day so made the movement got there had the meeting the next day and it's important to note this because i mentioned earlier it's normally a few elders in attendance but this day specifically after multiple delays in the meeting time uh you know, there's basically every male fighting agent above was in attendance, you know, very engaged, repetitive questions. Um, so for us, that was a little bit of a, a flag, you know, understanding that, hey, this is not typical. Um, you know, we need to get back. Something's off. And we all kind of had that feeling in our stomachs that, you know, there's something was happening or was about to happen. And I think a lot of us learn, trust your gut. And so we started heading back about three o'clock in the afternoon and 30 minutes later, you know, I remember it specifically to this day. I remember the tree I was looking at and the sound it made. It was just, you know, one shot, two shots. And then, um, you know, the whole valley erupted, uh, you know, RPGs, RPKs, PKMs, you know, everything pointed directly at us. They caught us in a perfect spot on a cliffside out in the open, you know, it was, November uh, in Afghanistan on a clear day. So sun was setting on us. It was, you know, shaded out on the hillside that they ambushed us from. And yeah, they had us in a perfect spot. And it, there's something, you know, a little bit different about my citation than a lot of others in the past. So if you read the incredible stories from Vietnam, Korea, World War II, World War One, you know, all the way back to the creation of the Medal of Honor, Oftentimes it's a, a singular act. You know, you'll read about um, somebody heroically jumping on a grenade to shield their buddies or, you know, charging a pillbox and, you know, incredible stories that I, I feel like aren't even comparable to mine. But really what, you know, Army leadership saw worthy of being awarded the Medal of Honor was really a collection of actions in where somebody at my rank, again, newly 
newly pinned specialist, um, which I firmly believe is the best job in the Army, uh, <laughs> art radio telephone operator, uh, you know, basically the, how the series of events unfolded, you know, we were instantly hit, I was wounded, almost everybody in the patrol was wounded. But at our specific location, we were cut off from the rest of the patrol. And since I told you we were on a cliff face, most of the patrol had jumped off the cliff down into the, the river valley just to be able to get some sort of uh, cover and concealment from the incoming fire. But, you know, where I was, I had a Marine sergeant that was attached to us who was gravely wounded. I had my Ford Observer who was responsible for directing, you know, air support, uh, mortar fire, things of that nature. He was wounded and I myself was wounded, but, you know, obviously I got pretty lucky that day. But I understood immediately that we were stuck there. And so, you know, what they credited me doing was saving the Ford Observer's life because he had been shot twice and I applied a tourniquet on his arm to stem the bleeding. And then I fashioned a tourniquet out of my belt uh, to stop the bleeding on his leg and then exposed myself to fire um, a few times to try to save the Marine Sergeant that was with us, but he would succumb to his wounds on the battlefield that day. Um, you know, after I'd say the majority of fire let up, um, just enough to get you know, positive control of a functioning radio, I was able to call in and help direct air support, um, you know, mortars and artillery, you know, to help break the, the enemy's will. And then at the end of the day, I said, you know, I guess the end of the, the incident in the middle of the night was helping coordinate uh, medical evacuation for those that were wounded and killed in action. So. It's a little bit of all of that combined with the level of, um, I guess, uh, my level in the military itself, um, they saw worthy of, of the Medal of Honor. And so, you know, I'll, I'll wrap up with this interesting fact that it's supposed to take like a maximum of two years. And so, you know, it was really interesting learning after attending some of the funerals from the guys that were killed in action and returning just before Christmas and in 2007 back to Afghanistan and hearing from my commanding officer that, you know, they're talking about the Medal of Honor, you're like, yeah, whatever. You know, at that point in time, nobody had been awarded the Medal of Honor, um, you know, who was still alive since Vietnam. And so I always made it a point and I told myself very early on, you know, if it happens, it happens great. But if not, I'm going to keep living my life. And as the years, you know, went on, I went to school and stuff of stuff like that. I, I was like, you know, if it happens, happens, that's, that's fine. But it got to my senior year, final semester. I was like, you know what? I don't care. Just please let me get through college. Like, I just want to be done. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it was about six months later that, that it all happened. So um, long, long story there. But I, you know, it's it's one that I have changing perceptions on all the time. Uh, probably will for the rest of my life. You know, worst day I've experienced. And, you know, it was the worst day for a lot of families of the guys that were killed in action. But you know, out of that specific incident, you know, it really gave me a purpose of, of what I need to do, not only as a recipient, but just as a fellow veteran and, you know, citizen in this country. And so, uh, yeah. So, you know, there, I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there that they just don't get, you know, how someone moves towards the sound of the guns. You know, it's hard, it's hard to appreciate, you know, knowing that gunfire is coming or, you know, enemy fire and you put yourself out there, you risk your life uh, to save your buddy. What, what do you isolate? I mean, what is it about either the 173rd, your particular unit, uh, the army that builds and forges those kinds of bonds? Absolutely. And that's a great question, Kumar. You know, in the years that have passed since not only that deployment, but that day specifically, you know, I've had a chance to stay in contact with a lot of people I served with. Uh, and we always have said it was a special group of people that came together for that specific deployment, you know, some force, whatever it may be, you know, it put those specific people in those roles to ensure the success we had, um, you know, was, was possible. Uh, I've also learned to understand that it was the leaders that made all the difference. And so I've been to a couple other units, you know, met a lot of people that have served at different times and in, in different use, units all across the Army, Navy, Marines, whatever it may be. And, you know, the, the thing that always makes a difference is leaders. For us, it was, you know, I was coming into a unit that had 
extensive combat experience. You know, they jumped into Baghdad right at the beginning of, you know, OIF and, you know, had a lot of, you know, storied, um, storied units and people within them. You know, the training that they put us through, you know, they really ensured and they, they would always tell us this, that we're just doing this because we want you to be prepared. You know, you have to do, you have to know this because it's your job. And what I always found was interesting is, you know, it wasn't enough for them for us just to know, hey, I'm, you know, an M203 gunner, I'm a SAW gunner, I'm an RTO. Like, that's my job. It's, they want you to know everybody's job. They want you to know your leader's job, just because they all collectively knew that when bad stuff happens, you know, the rule book's out. You have to be able to continue fighting, like continue bringing the fight to the enemy and getting everybody out there. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't become, you know, hey, you're in a firefight with, you know, an enemy on the hillside, but it's, hey, I got these guys to the left and right that I care about. Like, they're my family. Like, I need to do everything I can to get them back because um, I know they do the same thing for me. And so, you know, that dedication and just that overall understanding of how they needed to prepare us to do our job, because, you know, having never been in combat, I don't know what I'm supposed to expect, but my leaders took, you know, took it upon themselves to, you know, make sure I knew everything that I didn't know I need to know and that we were, you know, proficient as we can be and best prepared as we can be. You know, it's through mentorship, it's through guidance, it's through training, it's through, you know, really the whole experience that we went through. And I think that really any effective leader can do for their team is just share that, that experience, that knowledge, and just help us all grow as a team. And that's really what we did. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I still am in contact with my platoon sergeant from that time, who's now you know, command sergeant major and just took over uh, a new division, I think, down in Texas or something like that. But, um, you know, he wears a lot of, you know, what happened to his platoon and, and the company during that that time because, you know, he lost, you know, six guys on that that patrol. Um, you know, it was his call to go there and regardless, you know, the response is his, his choice as well. And, you know, I told him years later that, you know, the only reason I did what I did is because of you. I mean, you made it specific, you know, you made it very clear to us all that we had specific job that we need to be proficient in, but then we also needed to be prepared for every possible scenario that there could be. And it, you know, it's through your dedication, your commitment to ensuring that, you know, we're all effective in our roles and being the best we can be each and every day. That's the only reason why we succeeded as much as we did. And I imagine, I imagine he, he, he modeled what he expected from you. I mean, all good leaders do. I'm curious how much uh, he challenged you because uh, I can recall instances where, you know, the troops, you know, we, we like to complain um, especially when we're, you know, if we're at the end of a long road march and now you got to dig in yeah. and, and sometimes there's a temptation to kind of think, oh, the, 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 the leader that's not making us dig in, oh, he cares about us and everything. But actually the one who really cares about you is the one that's, that's building in the discipline and, and making you push yourself. Um, so I'm curious, tell, tell us more about your platoon, Sergeant. Yeah. So there's always one story I like to highlight and, you know, for me, it was just, it was is before we deployed, you know, going through our train-ups and one, something that's special about the 173rd and specifically the second 503rd back in 2007 is we were on a base so small in Italy, like you basically did your physical training off, off post. You know, there's no training facilities, no room for anything. Um, and even if everybody's running at the same time, it's too crowded. And so when we do our training cycles, be, you know, 30, 45 days and we, you know, load up on buses and go to Germany for that whole time. And uh, it was during one of our, our exercises in this, this place called Hamelberg. And, you know, I was a, you know, I think a PV2, so as new as I can be. And I was pulling guard in this barn and they were returning from a, a patrol at like two in the morning. And I was in overwatch, uh, you know, basically on the, above the barn door and, and they knocked on the door to be let in. And he yells up at me. He's like, Hey, who's up there? I was like, uh, you know, white Sergeant. And he's like, He's like, why isn't anybody down here? I was like, well, you know, I assume somebody would be down there. He's like, well, assumes a stupid word in the army. I was like, oh, you know, so after I got done doing, you know, a whole bunch of push-ups and getting like, <laughs> a cold night, you know, it's just like that level, you know, for some reason that moment has always stuck with me. And it was just like, wow, I have so much to learn. And like, this is the person who's going to teach me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
the leaders that were above me, because, you know, we have obviously team leaders, squad leaders, you know, they were all chosen for a specific reason. It's because they align with that thought mentality that he had. And really, you know, when you meet somebody like that, who's effective, I mean, it's almost, I mean, it's almost uh, contagious. Like you just see somebody who you want to be like, you know, because I remember, you know, thinking about how we all viewed him, how we respected him. Um, we were all scared of him, but, you know, at the end of the day, we knew that, you know, when I'm an E7 and I'm a platoon sergeant, like in his shoes, like I want to be like him because, mm -hmm. you know, just understanding how we all felt because of his leadership, like I knew he was effective. I knew exactly like he only cared about us and, and wanted, you know, the best outcomes for us and make sure we were best prepared. And so, um, yeah, in, in a little, you know, physical description for him, I think he's about five, six, you know, just this bald meeting guy, you know, never smiled. He would never have to yell, but you could just talk and you just knew, okay, I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So he, he's obviously hugely influential for you yeah. uh, in the army and beyond because uh, you're taking lessons learned from that. Yeah. Who's, who else has been influential for, for this next phase of life when you're, when you become a civilian? And so, you know, I've learned that, you know, probably I don't, have a single individual that's influenced me more than, um, you know, Sergeant Stalker did during my time in the, the army. What I've learned is like, I take little bits of, you know, conversations and relationships and, you know, those are things that stick out, you know, like this person's really good at this, or, you know, I really like the way they do business here. Um, and just sort of picking up little lessons from people along the way. I sit at, you know, almost like you know, collecting attributes, if you will. Yeah. Um, if I meet somebody and, and they impress me for one weird, one reason or another, I really like to think about why is it, and mm -hmm. you know, is it something that I can do or is it, you know, just something they're naturally good at. But, you know, I think, you know, having an understanding of the world around you and the different points of view that, you know, everybody has and the lives they've lived up until this point, you know, we can all learn from each other. And I think being able to recognize and what I've learned is being able to recognize you know, little bits of, of people that, um, you know, make them who they are. You know, why are they so effective? Why are they so successful? Or, you know, why does, you know, why am I crying because of their story? You know, all those little things, you know, you can just pick up and, and really understand that, you know, for me, I, I don't have one person I look up to, but, you know, dozens, because I think there's, you know, excellent things we can all learn from each other. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, um, there has been that model in the past where you kind of have a single mentor, maybe it's a formal relationship, but actually a life, you know, and professional life gets so complex mm -hmm. and um, and there's so many different nuances as you pointed out. It's great to have a, uh, yeah, a, a team, you know, a team that you can go to for just in time advice or, or to pick up, you know, lessons learned from. Um, which kind of is, you know, probably is a good segue into uh, 1109 um, does diversity and inclusion work, human capital management, a whole range of different uh, uh, innovative solutions that are provided to, to various organizations. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the, the advantage, how, you know, the advantages of a diverse team and uh, leveraging, you know, different backgrounds, skills. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I'd like to probably relate that a little bit back to, you know, serving in the army as well. You know, why do, or excuse me, why does the big army, you know, tend to rotate people every two, three years? You know, it's to get that diversity of thought and experience into, you know, different teams for that collective learning, you know, to ensure we avoid things like groupthink and, you know, um, what do they say, complacency kills and, and stuff like that. And so, you know, for me, as we start this company and we're involved in all these different areas, because, you know, you touch on a couple like, you know, diversity inclusion falls in the human capital space and we do IT services, you know, cybersecurity, you know, pretty much everything. But, you know, what we understood is that, you know, there's, you know, if I come in and I'm going to talk about diversity inclusion, you know, I can offer my point of view, but I'm not going to have, you know, I'm not a be all subject matter expert in that. But what I do know is there is a ton of people out there that have unique points of view, like everybody's lives up until this point that we meet and have this conversation have all taken different paths. So collectively, like being able to harness that in, you know, either 
help educate a larger population or help just share those experiences and make them relatable with other populations. I, I think it's extremely important. And so for us, you know, it's funny, we'll talk to, you know, potential partner companies or, or other customers and they'd be like, well, it kind of seems like you do a little bit of everything. Well, if I find the right people that can bring, you know, the right perspective, the right education, the right experience to help solve or add value to a customer or partner, you know, why wouldn't I explore that? Because at the end of the day, are you moving the bar in the right direction? Like, are you adding significant value? Are you able to help, you know, change the, the environment that somebody's working in, help make it more inclusive, help make it, you know, just better for everyone to be their full selves each and every day. And so, you know, for us, it's all about just bringing the right team together to help solve some of these problems. And, and it's really been a rewarding experience because at the end of the day, I mean, you know, just like conversations like this, Kumar, you know, we learn a little bit about each other and then you just kind of collect those little stories, those little tib uh, tidbits and, you know, you can come together, you know, with excellent minds that you meet all the time and, you know, really come up with some you know, creative programs, creative trainings, things of that nature. And, and really at the end of the day, when it all comes together and it clicks and, you know, you're able to deliver something great and, and either, you know, help somebody, uh, like I said earlier, you know, be them full, be their full selves or, you know, have a push to go get that mental health care appointment that they've been putting off or, you know, finally admit that, hey, you know, I do have some PTSD problems or raise their hand and say, I'm feeling suicidal, you know, things like that. I mean, if we're able to help achieve even one of those outcomes, um, you know, that's a measure of success for us. You know, um, the in, in our programs, we talk about leading change. We talk about some essential principles that are part of that, that include um, vision, resilience, strategic thinking, uh, external awareness of factors that are, will impact uh, the, the, the issue, uh, flexibility. Would you comment on on you know, a change, a major change initiative you've been part of, and, and that could be even standing up the business. Um, but would you give us an example of, you know, what the, the essentials were that came into play for you in terms of successfully leading change? Yeah. So, you know, there's been a few examples of that, both, you know, I think personally and professionally, you know, either my time in the finance sector or at 1109 or even during the, the army, but, you know, there's always been this saying, and it was my battalion commander back in, in 2007, who, you know, we were having some trouble. I think the, the pace of the deployment was weighing on some people, had some substance abuse issues and things of that nature. But, you know, he's talking to junior level leaders and he's like, you know, if you don't like what's happening around you, like you need to be the change that you want to see. And I know that quote is not his originally. It's a, it's a famous one I've seen, you know, probably hundreds of times since then. But, you know, I think that's really an important part of leading change is just, you know, if you, you know, want to, you know, bring a new program in or, you know, change the way th op things are done operationally, whatever it may be, you know, don't be afraid to spearhead that effort. Uh, that on top of, you know, you mentioned a lot of great things, you know, strategic thinking and, and things of that nature. Um, communication is mm -hmm. probably the biggest one. Um, just yeah. because with, you know, everything that, that can happen just with an organizational change. So think about, and I know this for myself, just personally, like I get complacent sometimes I get very comfortable when I'm doing my job. Like I know how to do it. My own SME, like things are great, but you know, anytime some sort of external force comes in and tries to change either the way I have to conduct business or, you know, the way um, I want to conduct business, you know, that's, that's a specific challenge. It's, it's learning, you know, new methods, new processes, new policies, whatever it may be, um, you know, but having that communication from leadership, you know, just that, you know, either effective instruction, mentorship, whatever it may be, I just think that's really, um, really important to just help guide that process. And then as a leader, you know, being open to communication as well, you know, just because mm -hmm. you're sitting in that senior level position, you know, I think the people I've always had the most respect for and, and the leaders that have uh, probably bonded with the most and, you know, <laughs> literally follow what they say uh, are the ones that took the time to, you know, listen 
you know, hey, you may be junior to this program or junior to this position, but you know, what are the challenges you're facing with this process? Is there something that can be done better that we're not thinking about? Um, you know, it's just little that little things that you can do along the way. Um, and I think that's reflective of, you know, just my mentality as a business owner as well. Um, you know, regardless if I'm talking with the CEO of a, a partner company or, you know, my most junior level employee, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, communication is open, um, you know, free, you know, free exchange of information and ideas. Like we can only do better if we learn from each other. And so that, that would be my answer. Long winded, like most of my. <laughs> You're, you're communicating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then, I mean, I've got to imagine, I mean, I'm, I'm experiencing it myself as a, as a, as a new, you know, trying to get a new small business concern off uh, and running um, the ups and downs, right? I mean, you, you think that maybe you've closed the deal or, or, you know, different things get in the way. Um, so certainly there's, there's, you know, and here I'm getting at resilience. Mm -hmm. Are there any strategies that you use to kind of, you know, keep, battle focus to keep uh, persevering um, and just to stay healthy, your overall well-being. What what do you do? Yeah. So for me, um, just overall well-being uh, is really important. Just, you know, if not only for the physical benefits uh, of, you know, physical exercise, but for my mental state as well. Um, very early on, especially when I went through, you know, my post-traumatic stress uh, treatments back when I was in the army, you know, for a couple of years, the one thing that really stuck with me is just, you know, physical exercise. It just kept me clear, kept me focused, kept me driving forward. Um, and so that's something I maintained, you know, all the way through till today. And I think it's a significant, you know, driver of just how I attack, you know, each and every day. Um, yeah. And as far as, you know, the resiliency wise, I, I've, I'd say my position in finance didn't have too many setbacks. Um, mm -hmm. It was, you know, one that was more routine, you know, a set, set of specific processes you went through each and every day, and that's your day. I'd say my real test um, since my time in uniform has been as a small business owner and really understanding when those losses come, even it doesn't matter how certain you are that you're going to win, you will lose. And when you do, you know, how do you push forward through that? And so for me, you know, I can sit there and focus all day on, oh man, X amount of revenue is gone, or, you know, this is the X deal we've lost. But instead I'm just like, oh, well, what could we have done better? And so I think personally, you know, I could have done X and Y and well, what did we do good? And then just building off of that, not really taking them as losses, but just as opportunities to learn and improve. Um, yeah. I really think it's all about mindset, um, yeah. how you view, you know, the challenges that you're faced with, the, you know, the struggles that you're maybe dealing with personally or professionally, you know, how do you, how are you framing it in your mind? Is it something you're going to push past um, and how are you going to do it? And for me, it was, that's how. You know, it's funny um, when you, when you talk about kind of uh, reviewing what, what you could do better and everything else, I go right back to like when I was a Lieutenant in the army and I say, I tell people all the time, everything I learned about leadership, I think 90% of it came from there, right? I mean, just whether it's troop leading procedures and giving giving people more time to prepare, giving them a warning order, um, developing courses of action, after action reviews, what went well, what you know, could you do better? Um, it just strikes me that uh, I think that when we, for those of us that have served, we take a lot of these things as like common sense, mm -hmm. and uh, because they've just kind of been naturally baked in as we've gone through that experience. And yet you get out there in the civilian world and, you, and, and at least me, I'm surprised sometimes at, um, at basic leadership, you know, uh, skills that aren't being practiced. I don't know what your experience has been. Yeah, absolutely. And it's almost a shame. And, and I wish there was some way that, you know, the bag of skills can be transferred. And, you know, I, I refer to the bag of skills as kind of the, the things all service members possess once they leave the service. I mean, it's just simple stuff. It's, you know, um, effective communication, you know, it's uh, showing up somewhere on time, you know, things of that nature uh, in our, our work ethic and our discipline. But, you know, you touched on some very, you know, important points. And I think it's a lot of, you know, what I share, 
you know, viewpoints as well is a lot of my, my, how I view effective leadership and who I think are effective leaders is really influenced by my time in the military. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's often, you know, we hear about it in in some of our discussions with companies and, and customers alike, where it's, you know, how do I, how do I get that experience from, you know, these military leaders and then teach it to my mid-level managers? Well, you can't, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if somebody came up with an effective app to do that, you know, we don't, <laughs> have cares, but uh, <laughs> exactly, <Yeah. laughs> you know, but it, it's, uh, it's interesting, but, you know, I, I see a lot of times I feel like, especially in the private sector and, and again, this is just from my personal experience, a lot of times people are, you know, promoted based on, you know, their their merits as either, you know, the educational institute they went to or, you know, how they performed in their specific role. But along the way, you know, I think it's pretty common to not have any sort of leadership development progression within that right. same stretch. And right. so I think that's where it comes in, because then you have somebody who's, you know, just used to doing their day job and worrying about what they're doing. And now they're responsible suddenly for you know, a team of 10, 15, 30, whatever it may be, you yeah. know, an effective toolkit, you know, or really that bag of skills to be able to, you know, really lead that charge in an effective manner. You know, you're left with what we see and what's often experienced in, in the private sector. And that's, you know, challenge. Yeah, you, you, you've touched on something that really kind of um, always kind of gets, gets me going because at least within Homeland Security, because we had limited means in which to kind of reward technicians, we tended, the only real kind of option to reward that technician over time was to promote them. And of course, being a good technician can be very different from being a good coach, right? The skill sets are not necessarily the same in terms of doing the work yourself versus empowering and developing others to get the work done. And, uh, and then we pay the price for it when uh, we don't, we're not a little more uh, wise and prudent about how we vet and evaluate candidates for promotion into into leadership supervisory ranks and so on but you you keep talking about the bag of skills that veterans um kind of transition to this uh, civilian life with i wonder if you could help you know what do you think is the biggest myth or misunderstanding of veterans by by the civilian world for veterans that are transitioning out of the military See, that's a tough one because I think, you know, it's like Afghanistan in general, like um, all experiences vary. Uh, yeah. You know, you have the, the people that work on the base and you have people that are out patrolling on the on the battlefield. But, you know, I think when we all come to a point where we decide to leave the service, whether retirement or a majority, I think it's like, you know, 86 percent you know, prior to fulfilling their retirement term uh, separate. You know, I think there's a misconception. I've seen it sitting on the private sector side that, ah, oh, you know, yeah, they're a veteran, but they don't have the experience. I think, I think the, I wouldn't call it a misconception, but I think the biggest underestimation of the veteran population is our ability to adapt and learn. Because what happens to all of us when we go to basic training or, you know, whatever you officers went to, you know, you're handed, you know, the infantry manual, on the first day and you know you have x amount of days to learn it and you'll be quizzed on each section each day or whatever it may be and you better know it word for word um you know that mentality that ability that you know we have heard it echoed you know ten thousand times the crawl walk run you know approach that the military takes you know it's something that does not ever leave your your mindset i mean it's just ingrained in there and i i still do it with you know, every single new challenge I face as a business owner, and even as a father and husband, you know, how do I, this is a new task, something I have no idea how to do, but I will be a subject matter expert, and I will be able to teach somebody else this at the end of my time. And so um, I just think, you know, our adaptability uh, and our ability to just, you know, become SMEs or subject matter experts in a short amount of time. I, I think that's one of the greatest things and probably the most undersold characteristic of a veteran, especially when they're sitting on an interview. I think we're all, I think we all have a level of humility that's ingrained with us as you know, we've worn the uniform. That's, it's a sense of, you know, pride, but it's also, you know, you're supposed to be humble. That's how I was raised in the military and I'm sure you were as well. 
And so being able to you know, sell oneself on your ability to just, yeah, I will do this job or I can, you know, I have the education, I have the experience and I may not, uh, I have the life experience. I may have, have the direct experience, but I will be able to learn this job and be proficient at it. And I think that's probably one of the most undersold, underestimated um, parts of it for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get topical here. Uh, the uh, President Biden announced that we are withdrawing from Afghanistan um, by September uh, 11th of this year. What's your reaction to that? So you now you have to understand this from the mindset that my time in uniform, I got out as a you know, E5 sergeant. So you know, my, my level, my high level, you know, understanding of strategic plans and, and things of that nature uh, should not be credited um, in this response. But, you know, for me, I had, I guess, what would be the first, first impact of what a withdrawal would look like back in, in 2008. And so all the ground that we had fought for as the one, 173rd and so in the, the Weigall Valley and the the Pesh River Valleys and, and um, uh, you know, Kunar Nurstan province, you know, it wasn't probably eight, 10 months after we were gone that the army just pulled everybody back from there, closed the bases down, pretty much handed it back over to the enemy. And so, you know, for me, that was an incredibly hard thing to understand, just like you know, why after so much time, you know, so much effort and the lives that, you know, were sacrificed in that area, would we just hand it back over? And, you know, I think as, and, and again, you know, so I left in 2010 or 2008, there's been a tremendous amount of progress on the ground there as far as, you know, standing up their own security military forces, uh, you know, f formation of a, you know, attempt at a stable government. A lot of different factors go into the situation on the ground. But I think at the end of the day, what you're seeing is, you know, the American people that are you know, tired of a conflict that's gone on for, you know, 20 years of that point in time, should he uh, pull off exactly that day. And so, you know, for me, somebody who served there, I'm, I'm proud of the work that we did. I'm proud to have served. And, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, the politics of it, you know, what the president decides, what the commanders in, you know, thousand miles away decide has no effect on your mission at that outpost or on that patrol, because you quickly understand that, you know, all of that goes out the window a, when the first shot happens, and B, when you realize that the people to the left and right are the only ones that you care about right now. And getting each other back, that's your mission. And so for me, um, you know, I think those that I served with, we're proud of our service, we're proud of our time on there. Um, I'll never forget it. And I think that the mission that we set out on, you know, day one and May 23rd, 2006, or 2007, and left on, I think, a forget my last day in July of 2007, you know, I left that ground you know, foot off understanding that my mission was accomplished. And so, right. you know, for me, um, you know, it's, it's, those are all big level decisions that are beyond me, but I will always remain proud of my service and my time that I spent in Afghanistan. I really think we made a difference. Um, and when you, I, I shouldn't let you go without asking this question because uh, you've served in an elite unit. You've served in the Airborne and the 173rd Airborne uh, in particular, which has a storied history. Um, what would you identify as maybe two or three of the most important qualities um, that made it such a high performing unit? Hmm. So I think. Um, the overall, and it, you can ask a bunch of people who have served in, in, you know, overseas duty stations, but, you know, foreign stationed, you know, U.S. Army units are, that's not the Army. You know, there's, everyone has a unique feel to it, whether you're in Germany, Italy, you know, if you're anywhere other, any other location in the world, Hawaii even. Um, I think, you know, the culture of, you know, where we were in Italy blended with, you know, small unit size, just the overall closeness of how we were. Um, I think that really built a cohesive unit, like more of a family before we even deployed, mm -hmm. but the, by far the most effective, you know, um, the most effective asset in 
you know, the shaping of that unit, the shaping of our mission, how we, you know, dressed each and everything was by far the leadership. Um, you know, the, the leaders there, I can't think of a single one that was not of quality and not somebody that I looked up to. Um, that wasn't just me, Kyle White, private, Kyle White specialist or sergeant, but that was just because they were just solid people that truly, you know, put others before themselves. You know, they understood in order for us all to get back, I, you know, get back, get safe and, and accomplish our mission. You know, I have to give far more to these people than I'm going to get in return. But that was just how they put it. They were selfless, you know, selfless leaders that, you know, put everyone's needs above their own. And it showed each and every day. That's why we were so close. You know, we would follow these people everywhere and the lessons and the leadership, the knowledge that was passed down. I know people that are still serving, you know, they were privates with me and now they're, you know, first sergeants and, and sergeant majors almost. But, um, you know, they still talk about that time, you know, in, mm -hmm. in that company, in that platoon, in the leaders that, you know, affected me just the same way as they affected them. Uh, it was just a special group of people that came together, but, you know, how we trained uh, and, you know, the, really the investment that the leadership took to us being the best that we can be with the resources we had um, was definitely a key reason why the unit was the way it was and why we were successful. All right. What would you say to someone that uh, wants to serve their country, either in the military and law enforcement uh Homeland Security, the intelligence community, State Department, whatever it may be, what would you say? What advice would you give them? Um, overall, be educated. So, you know, understand what it is that you're going into as best as you can. So um, I think, you know, a big thing that I would recommend, especially in today, the age of social media is to network, you know, try to find somebody who's you know, in that job that you were thinking about pursuing and, you know, reach out and see if you can have a conversation and truly understand, you know, what their day to day is, you know, how they're, how they're supporting their mission, um, some of the challenges they face and, and seeing if that's something that aligns with what you have for your career plans. You know, I would be, um, I would regret not saying that, you know, think about what comes next. So if you're going to, you know, join one of the armed forces, which I encourage everybody to, I think it's great you know, think about what you want to do after, because I had the intention, you know, I was going to go in and do 20 years and, and that's going to be my career, retire, and I'll do something else. Um, in all actuality, you know, 9 November 2007 changed my perception of, you know, my my time in uniform and, and what it meant. And so for me, I knew I needed to get out. Um, but then you realize quickly that, you know, as a 11 Bravo infantrymen, you know, it doesn't quite translate well into, you know, IT services or <laughs> even the financial sector. So, That's when the guys in the core of finance, uh, look, yeah. they're, they're looking a lot smarter at that point or exactly. in or so. <laughs> exactly. But that's, that's the point I'm saying. So yeah. think about what that next step might look like should you decide not to serve an entire career um, in the armed forces. And so, you know, if you just love, um, you know, cybersecurity or, you know, whatever it may be, um, you know, think, okay, well, can I do this job inside the military? And does that put me in an advantageous position once I, you know, leave my time in service? And how does that look in the career field that I'm looking to be in? Um, yeah, I'd say just be informed, think about what comes next after that. And then, you know, stay hungry and motivated. But I think the biggest part is networking. Um, even when you're in that job, you know, yeah. do the best to be, uh, you know, finding out, the broader mission of, you know, what your agency, what your branch supports and, you know, just have a broader understanding of where your place is and how that affects the broader organization. It's good advice. It's good advice. Kyle, thank you so much for taking the time to share some lessons learned from your career that continues to unfold in, uh, in dynamic new areas. And uh, thank you, of course, for your service. Um, where can our, if our listeners want to find out more about you or 1109 where can they connect with you online yeah absolutely so i'm on linkedin um kyle white on there you should be able to find my profile pretty easy uh as well as our, our website www.11 spelled out dash 09.com and uh that website will go under you know a, a modernization effort here shortly because our, our list of um, offerings is ever expanding but I'm pretty active on, you know, some of the other social I have on Facebook and then Instagram as well, uh, official Kyle White. So, um, 
yeah, it's been a great time being on here, Kumar. I can't, you know, for the life of me, understand why you want to speak to me on, on this, <laughs> but, uh, and I definitely appreciate it and um, hope the listeners in, enjoyed, you know, learning a little bit about me, but uh, again, the U.S. Army's homepage, if you want to learn more about this specific battle, um, just, you know, Medal of Honor, Kyle White, Battlescape, it'll come right up and um, it's a pretty incredible experience. So I encourage people to do so. I, uh, I remember hearing a story about a White House reception for Medal of Honor recipients. And uh, one of the staffers asked, what are the, the blue ribbons around their necks? And, and uh, the other person responded, I don't know, but they must be pretty easy to get. Everyone's got one. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard that one? <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't heard that one. But I, I, I got one little story for you. And so, um, you know, Lewis, who's going to be on the internet connection, we were at the uh, the Bush Presidential Library um, down in uh, Texas. I think Dallas is where it's at. And, you know, I was there um, as a recipient. So I was wearing my medal and, and stuff like that. We were walking around the museum and there's this display for, you know, all the uh, posthumous Medal of Honors that President Bush awarded while he was in office. And there's a couple in front of us and they, you know, they were looking at all the medals and then they turned around, you know, like, looked at my medal and then <laughs> looked at the display and in there just like kind of like huh you know like <laughs> didn't click it was the same thing but it was just you know one of those uh surreal moments that you're just like huh. yeah. you know, it's it's pretty yeah. interesting but uh yeah uh it's been a crazy ride uh as a as a recipient just in general i mean again with the platform you're given you know finding the right purpose for it and i'm i'm very lucky to have done so uh and i just hope to keep you know, affecting change the, the population I want to and, and moving the bar in the right direction for our nation's veterans.